everybody. Welcome to the Taming the Shoe podcast, a quarantine edition. Um, this week, we're going to be recapping our most recent journal club, which uh, covered several different articles focusing on pediatric cardiac arrest. And today, we're joined by uh, Dr. Jen McEnan, <laughs> Dr. Mann, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Eileen Hall, who are going to cover these papers for us and talk to us about uh, why they picked them. So, uh, Dr. McEnan, why don't you take it away? All right. So, we... We selected these three articles, uh, the common theme being pediatric cardiac arrest, uh, some of them looking at some of the drugs we frequently use in cardiac arrest, and the third looking at targeted temperature management, specifically in the pediatric population. Uh, we selected these papers basically just as an update in general in the field of pediatric cardiac arrest. Um, two of the articles were published within the last year, and the third article was published um, in 2015. So thought it would be uh, a good time to go over both the specifics of the article and then also kind of brush up on uh, pediatric cardiac arrest in general as well. So the first article uh, is titled Therapeutic Hypothermia After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest in Children. This was published in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine in 2015 by Moeller et al. It's a large, randomized, multi-center trial uh, prospective in nature. Uh, it involved 38 pediatric centers, uh, pediatric intensive care units uh, included, and they enrolled a total of 295 patients in this study. Now, the general goal of this paper was essentially to look at uh, targeted temperature management, so therapeutic hypothermia after pediatric cardiac arrest. Does this confer benefit for general survival, and improved functional neurologic status survival uh, at one year after uh, the point of randomization. We're kind of briefly going through their methods. The inclusion criteria, uh, so these are, they only enrolled children. Ages were 24 hours, uh, excuse me, 48 hours of life uh, to 18 weeks. They defined cardiac arrest as requiring chest compression for at least two minutes. They obtained ROSC in all of these patients, and all of these patients required mechanical ventilation after ROSC was achieved. Uh, some of the exclusion criteria, there are several. Uh, some of the major exclusion criteria were a GCS uh, motor subscore of five or six, major trauma or bleeding, so any issues with major trauma or bleeding, diagnosis of terminal illness, uh, if hypothermia was the cause of arrest, and uh, one of the interesting kind of not really a flaw, but an, uh, an interesting point in the article is that 208 patients were excluded from the trial because they had a clinical team that decided to withhold aggressive treatment. They don't go into specifics as to what this means, uh, but it certainly does have some bearing on uh, downstream effects and trying to understand uh, why they may or may not have been able to demonstrate this. So their protocol in general was their, they divided their patient population randomly into two groups. Uh, the first group had targeted temperature management to 33 degrees for a total of 48 hours, uh, and its sort of partner group, the second arm of the trial, was targeted temperature management of 36.8 degrees for 48 hours. And so we're looking at a therapeutic hypothermia versus a therapeutic normothermia, kind of the two arms of the trial. And then after the, the first 48 hours, both of those limbs had targeted normothermia uh, of 
6.8 degrees for an additional 72 hours. Um, so looking at their outcomes, there are several outcomes that are reported, but kind of hitting the highlights of the trial, they, they looked at general survival at one year. They showed a, a trend, uh, but did not reach statistical significance here. So in uh, targeted hypothermia, so the 33 degrees group, they had a 38% survival versus 29% in targeted normothermia. They also looked at survival with uh, VABS2 score greater than 70, which is not a score that I was super familiar with in emergency medicine in general. Uh, but what that looks at is functional status and controls for age uh, in the pediatric population. It includes things uh, such, such as motor uh, subscore, uh, looking at motor function, uh, cognitive reasoning, things like that, verbal communication. And greater than 70 is what they, they determined to be good uh, neurologic status. And they, again, showed a trend towards benefit here, but did not demonstrate statistical significance with 20% in the targeted hypothermia group uh, versus 12% in the targeted normothermia group. Some of the secondary outcomes that I thought uh, were worth reporting on, uh, none of these reached statistical significance and really didn't have a trend towards uh, trend here either. And so transfusion, so any need for blood transfusion, any serious arrhythmia, any culture-proven infection in either of the two groups, um, roughly the same, no statistical significance demonstrated here. So it seemed to be, in general, looking at this, there's a trend towards benefit, uh, and there doesn't seem to be a significant difference in any of the safety outcomes, but probably didn't have enough patients enrolled to demonstrate a, a benefit of targeted hypothermia if one were to exist. So kind of taking a step back towards their methods, they selected their, their patient sample size in order to detect an absolute effect size of what they thought would be 15 to 20 percent uh, in their the primary outcome of the survival with the VABs score greater than 70. Um, and the, what they actually demonstrated was a trend, with a difference of 8%. So, uh, so this, this study is either there is no difference here, there's no difference in survival or survival with good functional neurologic outcome, or the study is underpowered uh, to demonstrate that. It's kind of the, a good summary, I would say, of what they were able to demonstrate here. And we went through this article as part of our Grand Rounds curriculum uh, shortly ago. And kind of the, our take on this is that it's looking at some of the similar articles, uh, kind of in the, the same genre, so cardiac arrest and targeted hypothermia. Uh, some of the interesting differences here is that the second arm of the trial is targeted normothermia. And in some of the other trials, and adults and neonates have looked at just kind of whatever the body audio regulates that is secondary. Uh, second limb in the trial, and those all showed statistical significance benefits for targeted nor, uh, hypothermia. So it may be that some of the benefit that's demonstrated that is just preventing fever uh, in these patients as well. And so this kind of can be added to the list of trials here that are, there's either a trend or an association or in many cases a statistically significant benefit to avoiding sort of aberrant physiology after cardiac arrest. That includes things like fever, high
hypoxia, hyperoxia, hypocapnia, hypotension, seizure, elevated ICP. And so that was kind of the highlight that we hit. Oftentimes in papers where you see a, uh, a trend towards improvement in one of the primary outcomes, a lot of the secondary outcomes will also either see a statistically significant difference in some of those things. And this really, everything seems to be not statistically significant at all. So um, certainly either, as you say, this is underpowered to detect the difference that actually may be there, or in truth, there really is no difference. So, um, but as you said, like preventing abnormal physiology after cardiac arrest is probably like the, the way to go with most things. I just going to say it's difficult to draw a conclusion here, and that's reflected in what we see actual uh, pediatric centers in the United States doing, So, as well as the AHA. So the AHA official recommendation is basically that it's reasonable to do targeted normothermia. It's reasonable to do targeted hypothermia in this patient population. Um, kind of either are fine, and they don't take a strong stance. And what you see, at least throughout the United States, is that there are several large academic centers that exist in both camps. So the next paper is that we talked about was um, looking at um, epinephrine in um, pre-hospital um, pediatric cardiac arrest. So the study was called Pre-Hospital Administration of Epinephrine in Pediatric Patients with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. And um, it came out actually this year in January in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And kind of this was um, a population-based observational study that was um, done in Japan. And again, just looking at the pre-hospital administration of epinephrine in pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So it was a Japanese study, and they used a large national registry to collect their data. Um, and they collected the data from January 2007 to December 2016. And their population was like pediatric patients, only 8 to 17 um, that had suffered a cardiac arrest in the pre-hospital setting. And what they they wanted to like specifically address resuscitation time bias. So kind of as the resuscitation is going on longer, potentially having more interventions performed. But um, those interventions actually may lead to harm because the longer resuscitation and kind of having worse outcomes. So they wanted to um, specifically address that resuscitation time bias. So to accomplish this, they used time-dependent propensity score sequential matching, where patients that had received epinephrine were matched to um, similar patients that had not received epinephrine yet, but, but were at risk for re receiving epinephrine at that same time point. And in the end, it was a small study. They only had 306 patients that had actually received epinephrine and ended up matching 608 patients. Kind of in the end, they found that um, epinephrine did lead to statistically significant difference in pre-hospital ROSC, but um, for their secondary outcomes, there is no difference in one-month survival and um, no difference in one-month survival with favorable neurologic outcome. So kind of looking at the validity of the results, so it was a pretty small study they were they only had 306 patients that got epi and kind of it, it's most likely underpowered to find like statistically significant differences in um <laughs> in one month survival and survival with favorable neurologic outcome the other thing we talked a lot about in journal club is the propensity matching which kind of actually has 
potential to increase the bias just because you're only accounting for kind of observable covariates, but you may like unleash bias in not accounting for like the dormant and unobservable co-founders. So it's a little bit confusing. So potentially more bias there. And then it's also a little bit hard to make this study generalizable to like the whole pediatric patient population because they only use patients that were 8 eight to 17, and then about 88% of the patients in the study were actually adolescents. So a little bit harder to make it generalizable to all of pediatric patients. However, um, I think kind of like in the end in clinical practice, I think that we would all still recommend giving epinephrine in the pre-hospital setting for pediatric cardiac arrest. My, my take on the paper and many of the papers that look at the lack of utility or lack of benefit of epinephrine and cardiac arrest is, is that uh, it, it's an exceptionally tough uh, patient population to study uh, in a very rigorous experimental way, uh, such that you're controlling for a ton of variables. Um, so it's always going to come out messy. It's always going to be flawed in one way or another. And while I sort of laud an approach to either minimize the interventions that we're doing to decrease cognitive load, especially in you know pediatric cardiac arrest where the cognitive load is super high, I also think that you know there's really not a whole lot of else that you can do. Like if you rigorously study every single intervention you're likely to find that a lot of them don't have a significant utility or you can't prove that they have been a benefit. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do them at all, if that kind of makes sense. All right, let's go and finish off with Dr. Mand. Speaking of interventions with excess cognitive load. <laughs> all right, so I will be discussing the article that was published in Resuscitation by Holmberg et al., earlier this year in 2020, titled Lidocaine versus Amiodarone for Pediatric In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, an Observational Study. So just a brief explanation as to why we chose this paper, along with what Dr. Mackinnon had said earlier. Um, there's been a lot of controversy over the past few decades over which antiarrhythmic is the best in treating um, the pediatric population with shockable rhythms, defined as V-fib or pulsus VTAC. Many of the American Heart Association recommendations and pediatric advanced life support guidelines um, come from very small case series, and most of those are from the adult literature, so very few studies specifically looking at the pediatric population. The most recent recommendation in 2015 stated that both lidocaine and amiodarone were thought to be equivalent therapies in shock refractory rhythms, especially when treating the pediatric population. So we wanted to include this article specifically um, to really take a deep dive into a primary study um, involving the pediatric population and seeing what they had um, in regards of their outcomes. So in a quick overview, this is an observational cohort study of pediatric patients who had an in-hospital cardiac arrest with a shockable rhythm, once again defined as V-fib or pulseless VTAC. The authors wanted to compare outcomes between amiodarone and lidocaine and see once and for all if one was superior to the other in regards to patient survival rates. So this data collection process consisted of the authors prospectively gathering data from the National Database Registry, the Get With the Guidelines Registry, that is both sponsored and overseen by the American Heart Association. 
specific inclusion criteria that they wanted to include were patients less than 18 years of age, so targeting the pediatric population, anyone with an initial or subsequent shockable rhythm, and then anyone who received either amiodarone or lidocaine at any point during the cardiac arrest. Exclusion criteria specifically outlined anyone or excluded anyone that had achieved ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation within two minutes of onset of the arrest, and anyone who had received both amiodarone and lidocaine. They did also include, um, or sorry, make an exclusion criteria, at least for their primary analysis, of anyone who had missing data on covariates or primary outcome. So this overall led them to identify 471 patients between the years of 2000 and 2018. They were able to gather patient characteristics such as patient demographics, including patient age and past medical history, the time and location of the index event, including the year and hospital characteristics, and then as well as that event characteristics, including which interventions were ongoing before the arrest, what was the first pulseless rhythm, what was the time to intubation, time to CPR, and time to initial epinephrine administration. And specific outcomes that they were looking for were primary outcome of sustained ROSC, which they had defined as ROSC achieved for at least 20 minutes. And secondary outcomes were survival to 24 hours, survival to hospital discharge, and survival to hospital discharge with a favorable neurological outcome. The analysis was actually pretty robust for an observational study, and they did several different iterations of analyses that uh, were completed by the conclusion of the study. The three specific ones that I wanted to mention were the first one, which was the primary analysis, or what they considered the complete case analysis. So they only used patients who had a complete data set and all data was accountable for in this primary analysis. And that actually only included 365 patients out of the initially identified 471 patients. These patients, or the data set, underwent multivariable logistic regression modeling and then propensity score matching as well in order to match the baseline characteristics of the two groups to minimize any confounding variables. And they actually did a relatively good job of matching them based on um, the comparison between table two and table one in the article. After that, the second analysis that they ran was a subgroup analysis. So essentially, they wanted to assess whether or not age group, the year in which the cardiac arrest occurred, the sequence of the shockable rhythm, so whether or not it was an initiable or subsequent uh, shockable rhythm, as well as illness category, affected any of the outcomes they were seeing in their primary analysis. And then their third analysis was the sensitivity analysis. So once again, highlighting the fact that they had about 23% of their initially identified patient population with missing variables. They, this is actually a non-negligible number and it's a huge uh, portion of their patient population. So in an attempt to accommodate and account for this missing data, they underwent a sensitivity analysis. So they created 20 imputed data sets that also underwent propensity score matching and, and further analysis and wanted to see if there's any change in outcome in the sensitivity analysis compared to the primary analysis. So overall, in regards to the results that they had found, there was no statistical difference in ROSC, in survival to hospital, sorry, in survival to 24 hours, survival to hospital discharge, or survival to hospital discharge with a favorable neurological outcome. And this ran true regardless of which, what analysis um, that they were looking at, whether it was the primary analysis, 
the subgroup analysis, or the sensitivity analysis. So overall, the authors concluded that there is no significant difference in clinical outcomes when using amiodarone versus lidocaine in in-hospital pediatric cardiac arrests with shockable rhythm. There are, so just kind of to sum up the case um, in regards to some of the strengths and some of the limitations. In regards to strength, this is actually a pretty robust data set in a pediatric population, especially when considering a topic such as cardiac arrest, which is already an infrequent occurrence in the pediatric population when compared to the adult world. Um, they were able to find reliable patient information and demographics from the National Registry, and uh, just based on the fact that they were retrieving data from the National Registry, it provided them with a diverse sample size. The propensity score matching has its pros and cons, which Dr. Hall had already alluded to earlier in this uh, discussion, but we can see that there were huge differences in outcomes just based on their adjusted versus unadjusted cohorts in the paper. So I would think at least in this paper, this was one of the strengths. In regards to limitations, um, it was interesting that they did not include any data in regards to the timing of the antiarrhythmic um, dose that was administered as well as the dosage, whereas they accounted for most of their factors in the PALS algorithm, such as time to intubation, time to CPR, and time to epinephrine administration. So it's a little bit unusual as they were unable to provide data on the antiarrhythmic itself since that was the um, therapy that was being studied. So that's just something to keep in mind. The sample size after the propensity score matching was also small. So keeping in mind, they initially identified 471 patients. And then in their propensity score matching, there were 90 in the amiodarone group and 90 in the lidocaine group. So a lot smaller than what they were initially, they initially sought out um, in regards to their patient population. So it's likely, or it's at least, at least possible that this was an underpowered study if there truly is a benefit of one antiarrhythmic over the other. And then lastly, I would say the large number of patients with one or more missing variables um, was huge. And this may have led to some bias in confounding the results that they ultimately um, concluded at the end of their article. So overall take, I would say, um, I would continue to use both amiodarone and lidocaine as equally acceptable antiarrhythmics at this time. However, more robust data is definitely desired before making any further practice pattern changes in the future. Yeah, I think that uh, there's been similar sort of back and forth as to which antiarrhythmic is best in the adult uh, population. Um, and honestly, like probably whatever your local protocols are, are legitimately fine. Whatever's on your EMS truck, that's fine. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us on another uh, Taming the Shrew podcast. And uh, we'll see you in less than a month with another one uh, for another Journal Club recap. Thanks, everybody.